Montana. And I'm Samantha. And I'm Kelsey. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today we all three are bringing to the table a different asylum from around the U.S. But before we get started, Kelsey, what are we drinking? What gross concoction are we drinking? (laughs) (laughs) Who said it was gross? Um, This is called the Soul Taker. And it, uh, I haven't tried it yet, so you guys will get to hear (laughs) my first reaction. Uh, You're going to take one ounce of vodka, one ounce of tequila, and one ounce of amaretto. Make sure these are chilled in advance, and you're just going to pour all three ingredients into an old-fashioned glass, stir briefly, and enjoy. I don't think anybody needs to taste it in order to understand that it is going to take your soul. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, here we so, go. So cheers, ladies. Yeah. Cheers. Oh, mine's oh, not bad. It's not as bad. I was doing it it's not as bad <laughs> as I thought. I am gonna pour I mean I am gonna pour my sprite into it because I think that'll take the edge off a little bit, but um, I added a little bit because in sorry. In anticipation of it being quite strong. Yeah, well, it really wasn't that bad. Mine's nothing like either one of yours. Yeah, you Because Montana can't follow directions. If you give her directions, it does not matter what directions they are, she is going to do something of her own. I did. So instead of doing what Kelsey Instead of doing the recipe (laughs) I did vanilla vodka and amaretto and no tequila because I was once kicked out of Mexico for drinking too much tequila. And I put Sprite on top of it and it's delicious. So the only thing that matched the recipe was the amaretto. There you go. And all three of us used Sprite. We did. True. Add Sprite to it to make it a full drink. Not just like a... Otherwise, it's definitely a shot. Like maybe... A very large shot. Large shot, yeah. That's one of the things I noticed on the recipe was that it said that you can kind of... Because it's equal parts, you can adjust it as needed. So you can Mm -hmm. make it into like just one shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, so... We're going to get started on the asylums, and we each have a um, an asylum we're going to cover today. Samantha, I think you're first contestant up. I volunteer you as tribute. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. You can't volunteer other people. That's not how that works. I can it's do volu- whatever it's I volu- want. It's voluntold <laughs> when you're <laughs> right, making hi. somebody else do it. Voluntelling <laughs> right. you to do this. Okay, fine. All right. So today I am going to talk about the Jemison Center. It was built in 1939 and housed patients until 1977. It's also said to be one of the most haunted places in the state of Alabama, and it's located in Northport, Alabama, which is close to Tuscaloosa. The center was named for Robert Jemison Jr., a Confederate senator, businessman, and entrepreneur, and a part of one of the wealthiest and most influential families in the state. The Jemison family settled near Tuscaloosa in the 1830s. Robert had business, all kinds of businesses, um, including toll roads and bridges, a grist mill, a sawmill, livery stables, a hotel, and six plantations, totaling over 10,000 acres. Gross. Wow. He obviously made money uh, from family. Let's put it that way. Um, (laughs) He was a big reason why the Alabama State Hospital for the Insane, renamed the Bryce Hospital, opened in 1861. His largest plantation was known as Cherokee Place and was left to the state of Alabama Board of Mental Health after his death in 1871. 
A separate facility was established for patients of color during segregation known as the Jemison Center, which is why I did that whole preview. This is where the building came from. So he's racist as fuck. Yeah, well, everybody... Well, everybody that was involved in this whole the one everybody involved in this whole process definitely was gotcha. um so it was named the jemison center obviously for his generosity and donating the the uh the property gross it was located not far from the main campus and was a sort of replacement for the previous housing and i'm sure it was sold as an improvement i'm sure you can't wait to hear what that looked like yeah go for it and this again was just for the patients of color it was lofts of the barn at the Bryce Hospital. Aww. The Bryce Hospital believed in an approach to mental health, including patient work, as an important part of their treatment. This meant work a lot language. of, yeah, Sorry. real, real work. Real work. Oh, this God. meant a lot of free manual labor, especially when it came from the patients of the Jemison Center. Surprise. They were assigned the work of attending the fields around the property, uh, sound vaguely familiar from Mm -hmm. the south so basically slavery working the fields of the plantation so they got they found a way around getting past the laws that had been passed during the civil rights all right all right civil war okay all right sure cool 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 clarifying the reports of the terrible treatment of the patients were numerable even some I was able to find of actual people who had worked there or had experienced um, some of the treatment when they were visiting family members or friends. One of them was from alabamahauntedhouses.com. This one said, my grandfather's internship. My grandfather did his medical internship at Bryce Hospital in the late 50s and early 60s. He told us about how one of his classmates was killed by a patient there how commonly restraints and items of that nature were used, which is now considered patient abuse within the medical field, and about the treatments then. He remembered assisting in lobotomies, ice baths, and many other quote-unquote treatments. I would definitely believe this place is haunted now, and is a great, and it is a great piece of medical history that shows how far we as nurses, doctors, and psychologists have come. And that was posted in November of 2021. That's crazy that that he said that in what year? The 60s? Late 50s, early 60s. Oh my gosh. See, that, I can't believe that? it was still going on that that Me long. Too. But I'll before yeah. I get to the end, I'll uh I'll go over how how and when that changed. Oh my gosh. I just can't believe that. I feel like thinking about like when my parents were born, I'm like that wasn't that long ago. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like a lifetime or less. Yeah, a few generations, that's it. Mm-hmm. In abandonedsoutheast.com, um, Ronnie Glenn posted in October of 2019, I remember going to see my uncle in the late 50s. Must have been spring. Dogwood trees were lining the long drive in bloom. My dad said we had to stay in the car with my mom. Dad was in the hospital for a while. When he came out, he cranked the car and drove off, telling my mom my uncle said that the orderlies were giving were going to beat him because he told how bad it was to him. And that's when my dad left. We drove out of the drive, turned around, and went back. My dad said something in the door where it would not lock. Said, oh, had put something in the door where it would not lock. He went in and caught the orderlies beating my uncle. My dad was a tough guy, and dad and my uncle took care of the orderlies. A few minutes later, my dad and my uncle came out. My uncle came home with us, and we never heard anything else about it. So first, first, second hand accounts, essentially, um, Mm -hmm. In fact, the center was often compared to a concentration camp. 
At its worst, Bryce Hospital housed 5,000 patients. According to dailymail.com.uk, a reporter in the 70s that visited the facility while it was still open and running said human feces were caked on the toilets and walls, urine soaked the aging floors, many beds lacked linens, and the patients were sleeping on the floor. One small shower served 131 male patients and, and 75 female patients also only had one shower. Most of the patients at Jemison were highly tranquilized and appeared to have not bathed in days. All appeared to lack any semblance of treatment, and the stench was almost unbearable. Oh, my God. This was in the 70s. That's so fucked. Feces? Yeah. They, had just, they were just smearing it everywhere. Yeah. That's so gross. Oh, my God. Just to, you know, give you, give you an image of what it looks like. Right. That's heartbreaking, too. The findings and reports of the Jemison Center and Bryce Hospital caught the attention of enough people that the case was finally brought to court in a landmark lawsuit, Wyatt versus Stickney. It took 33 years to finally conclude the lawsuit, and it had been changed to include other inpatient medical health facilities. The ruling changed the way the patients were treated in these facilities forever. The ruling basically stated that the patients had a right to periodic psychiatric evaluations and to live in an un- in as unrestrictive of an environment as possible. This ruling affected the nation, not just Alabama. As a result, many patients were actually released from mental health, mental health facilities nationwide or transferred to homes to provide more independence or even prepare them to live on their own. The case went through nine Alabama governors and 14 state mental health commissioners and was the longest mental health case in U.S. history. What? The state of Alabama estimates the cost of the lawsuit at over $15 million. What year was that lawsuit? Oh, my God. Uh, I didn't put the year because I saw different um, when it was filed. Yeah, well, but the decision was reached. The initial decision was reached in 1970. Okay. All right. Because I'm, I'm just thinking about the Dorothea Dix whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. Yeah, so this was initially where it opened the doors of looking at how these patients were treated in these facilities. And this was the very basic, this is the bare minimum of what these patients deserve, basically, which had not been established prior to that. I guess they probably assumed they didn't need to say, hey, they should have, you know, access to bathing facilities and you shouldn't be drugging them. To the point where they aren't even cognizant of anything going on around them if they don't need to be. Like, well, why? Let's take this. All right. <laughs> Go back to um, racism, out of sight, out of mind. Same thing with segregation. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if if you don't have to see your mentally ill um, family member, it's really not a concern to you, right? Because you're not seeing the mistreatment that they're dealing with. If you segregate people in schools and in workplaces, you're not seeing the abuse that they they suffer. So it's not your concern. Mm-hmm. Which I go into, I have a quote from a judge that I thought was really good that made the judge that made the decision. I could probably do an entire episode on this case. It was fascinating. I went down a rabbit hole, but I, I did it for my own purposes of reading it. It was really just, it was crazy to just read all about it. Um, and the fact that the case was initially brought about by something completely different than the inevitable conclusion, 
But how often does that happen? Somebody brings something to the courts. They say, oh, wait, this has been going on. And it brings about this whole other issue that should have been known before. But this is what got it started. Well, that's the th- same thing you get in like civil cases. So if somebody if somebody murders, if person A murders person B, but person A doesn't get convicted by uh, the state, you can put a civil lawsuit as a person, as a family member or somebody who is acquainted with person B who got murdered. And it brings out more evidence, which then can lead to an actual criminal case on a federal level for the state. Mm-hmm. Bring you bring up something small, it brings to light bigger issues. Yeah, so I did go ahead and put in what did get this started just because it was fascinating. But the litigation was sparked by Alabama's nineteen seventy decision to cut its cigarette cigarette tax because the proceeds of this tax were earmarked for the mental health services. The cut set off a string of chain a string of a chain of events in the state's mental health system, including the elimination of nearly a hundred staff members at Bryce State Hospital a hospital serving predominantly patients involuntarily committed for mental illness. Involuntarily, you said? Involuntarily. Okay. And how, um, what was the, capa- like, what was the top capacity? Like, what was it supposed the most to most that they ever had was 5,000, but I couldn't find any information about what the capacity was supposed to look for. I look like, I don't oh, think okay. they knew. I don't think they really knew. Gotcha, gotcha. I was just curious. So 20 professionals, including psychologists, were among those fired. On October 23, 1970, the fired staff members filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Alabama seeking reinstatement on the grounds that patients in the institutions would receive inadequate treatment. To strengthen their position, the group decided to include a patient named Ricky Wyatt as the plaintiff. Wyatt, a 15-year-old juvenile delinquent, quote-unquote, with no mental illness, had been placed in the state hospital by the courts in an attempt to improve his behavior. His guardian was among the former, former staff members bringing in the lawsuit. The class was gradually expanded to include patients of another state hospital for patients with mental illness, which was Searcy Hospital in Mount Vernon, Alabama, as well as Alabama's state facility for people with developmental disabilities, the Partlow State School and Hospital. With this expansion, the focus of the litigation shifted from the rights of the employees to the rights of the residents. At the time, Alabama was ranked 50th out of 50 states for expenditures of the care of people with mental illness or developmental disabilities living in the public institutions. Conditions at state hospitals were so inhumane that the editor of the Montgomery newspaper described them as concentration camps, similar to those run by Nazis in Germany during World War II. Both staffing and treatment were woefully inadequate. And for example, at Bryce, just one clinical psychologist, three medical doctors with limited psychiatric training, and two social workers provided direct therapeutic care for 5,200 patients. I think, oh my God. I think you. So some of those must have been at the Jim Henson Center. Well, I think you find mm-hmm. that reference to concentration camps a lot in the um, sanatoriums, asylums, mental hospitals of the. I want to say probably starting around the 20s all the way up to the 80s. Well, I mean, it's easy because the who are these patients going to talk to? Who can they tell? Exactly. Where are they going to go? They don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. So it was easy to prey on them and take all the money that I'm sure they were, the people that put them there were being charged something to keep them there. And these patients never saw anything that even resembled any kind of treatment for that money. Yeah. And I... So this is the part. Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. I just. Oh, I'm just. Oh, 
I was going to say, I'm sorry. I'm going to apologize for both me and Kelsey. I think we're going through a storm right now. If you hear uh, something, oh, that's usually fine. me. Yeah, if you hear thunder in yeah. the background, it's either me or Kelsey. So just make it spooky. There we go. Yeah, okay. it's spooky. Yeah. And I was going to say, it'll be, it'll be spooky. Yeah. I was, I was going to say something about how crazy it is that there um, are no like ratio um, requirements for places like this because you think about like, um, a daycare center or something like that, where it's just children, there's always a ratio put into place. So mm-hmm. like you would think that, um, a place that had, you know, mentally ill individuals that need specific type of care, like need to have a certain amount of staff members. It's just crazy. And of course, I guess this was a long time ago, so they either didn't have it or didn't care. Well, Kelsey, or both. you should know better than any of us that there is a ratio that should be followed when it comes to government provided healthcare schooling and things like that yeah and it's i don't know the ratio yeah Mm -mm. i mean thankfully when i was did my little stint they had enough people because i was running around naked (laughs) well no i didn't mean that i mean she was referring to you being a teacher teacher. (laughs) no i know i just had to throw that in there (laughs) Okay, sorry. Sorry, Sam, go ahead. But no, Alabama, well, I just want to input this too. Alabama is one of probably the worst places to get your own mental health to. And that's, I feel like, is a change that really needs to happen. And me, speaking from firsthand knowledge of dealing with the mental health care in Alabama, it's terrible. And so they probably didn't make records like they should have and done things like well i mean it was 50th out of 50 states so obviously yeah. if there was a ratio <laughs> they would be the last to follow it uh, uh, i don't know uh how many patients do we have Five hundred thousand. okay it's five hundred thousand to one <laughs> to one if that's all if that's all we want to pay for that's all we're going to do that's yeah. alabama <laughs> so go on so anyway this is where the quote's going to come in from the judge and it was just it was fascinating because this judge I feel like was genuinely completely aghast at what he had heard and what had been revealed in this case. Um, After hearing arguments on the case, U S district judge Frank M Johnson jr. Ruled on March 12th, 1971. Sorry, it was 71, not 70 that thousands of Bryce Bryce patients who had been committed involuntarily quote, unquestionably have a constitutional right to receive such individual treatment as will give each of them a realistic opportunity to be cured or to improve his or her mental condition, end quote. He noted that these patients had been, quote, involuntarily committed through non-criminal procedures and without the constitutional protections that are afforded defendants in criminal proceedings, end quote. He continued, Adequate and effective treatment is constitutionally required because absent treatment, the hospital is transformed into a penitentiary where one could be held indefinitely for no convicted offense. He proclaimed to deprive any citizen of his or her liberty upon the altruistic theory that the confinement is for the humane therapeutic reasons and then fail to provide adequate treatment violates the very fundamentals of due process. Yeah. Chills. Yeah. Literally gave me chills. Like this Mm -hmm. is a judge that got it right and had to say something. And there's been a few cases where I've listened to other podcasts about like true crime and they will do the same thing. They'll read it when the judge has something to say, because sometimes the judges, they're just so flabbergasted by the case that they've heard. They have to say something. 
So obviously he did. I mean, and that's a big step, and especially from a judge from Alabama, of all people, to take that that stance on it. Yeah, and it didn't say anything about him having like a personal um, case with this, like that he had anybody that was in these hospitals, because you do hear that sometimes, because it does make it more personal. So it kind of puts it in your face. As far as I know, he did. And this was just, this is absolutely ridiculous. And this is not going to happen going forward. Hmm. So, and then I just put in here, like, imagine being one of these patients, being terrified and having no power whatsoever over your life, even down to the sanitary living conditions, the foods you eat or not allowed to eat, punishments for infractions imagined or made up, etc. So I can, I kind of mentioned this before we started uh, talking, but I can see why asylums are typically said to be the most haunted places in states because think about it these patients some of them died in these places that is a lot of bad juju in these buildings and a lot of these were shut down because of the this treatment and it it just makes perfect sense why these places would be so scary to be walking through especially after they're closed and nobody's there mm-hmm. i will not as i said before i will not be going to any of these abandoned asylums i am not about to put myself through that. I want to do it. I'd like to. I want to, sign me up. I want to feel nostalgic about my childhood. <laughs> wow, that took a dark turn. <laughs> that, was, that was a little dark. I was going to say something, though, about, like, I mean, I was in, they called it a behavioral health unit. Um, I think that's what they call it now. Like yeah. The, the long-term treatment places. Yeah. So, and even even though I was like fed and clean and, you know, had a bed and like all these things, it was still so scary and so traumatizing at times because I was out of touch with reality. So I'm, I'm sure that these patients also felt that way. And it's just crazy. Um, and it's terribly sad because, you know, they couldn't help, they couldn't help what happened to them. No. And treatment was in no way, shape or form on the agenda for any right. of the people working here. Well, I won't say any of the people, cause I feel like there were probably people that genu- genuinely were there to try to help the patients because you do have that at hospitals, but you got to think either they didn't stay there long cause they were kicked out or they left because they couldn't mm-hmm. make a difference. And that would be too heartbreaking to look at every day, all day. And yeah. no, there's nothing you can do. Well, and to give a yeah. different perspective on it, you know, I went into a mental hospital when I was a teenager. I didn't need to be there. Doctor said I didn't need to be there, but it was pushed for me to go into it. And being someone who wasn't, you know, I was in an okay state of mind and I got to see what a facility and I was in a state run facility was really like. And it is it is gray and it is depressing and it is not well-maintained and the staff typically don't care, especially in those state-run facilities, what's happening. And it's sad. And especially back then, people were being put away, like I said previously in a previous episode, because they read too much mm-hmm. or they got too sad. Listen, I cried during Twilight the other night for 45 <laughs> minutes. I should be in a hospital <laughs> for that. <laughs> but, you know, it was simple things like that, that people didn't need to be in hospitals for. They were just feeling their feels or they were just being them. Mm-hmm. And 
where they were quote unquote juvenile delinquents. And basically all that meant was they weren't following to a T what their parents or guardians thought they needed to do. That's it. Yeah. I was definitely a juvenile delinquent. (laughs) (laughs) Or they just had a brain imbalance that they can't help. But the, the other part was that like the doctors at this time and like everyone, they only had what was available to them. So if you think about how far technology has come and how far like medical, um, you know, procedures have come, like, they didn't have all of that back then. And I genuinely feel bad for them, because I would never want whatever they had as far as treatment. Girl, yes. Could you imagine going to the hospital with what you had 100 years ago? You would have been lobotomized. I would have died. I would have been lobotomized. Or shocked. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, well, and the thing is, if you want to get good treatment and you want treatment that's really going to train you to get to a place where you can live on your own, the treatment is astronomical. And almost all the time, your insurance company won't cover it because they're like, well, you can get it cheaper elsewhere. Well, yeah, but you're also going to have to pay long term a lot more than if you'll just shell out the bucks and help me get to a place that I can learn to be better. Well, and that kind of goes, that also goes back to like, social services and things like that so if somebody has like a mental disability or a mental disorder and they're trying to get better and they're trying to live on their own or they're trying to do things that they need they need social workers to be able to check in on them and things like that Mm -hmm. and we just don't have the facilities the money and the infrastructure to be able to provide sorry i hit my mic to provide social workers at at a pace that we need and especially yeah well it, it would help if they would pay them better yeah that's true for starters that's exactly what i was gonna say because i, I mean, mean you would basically have to be altruistic at mm-hmm. this point to get into that role mm-hmm. because you're not going to make enough money to survive so Mm-mm. you sure won't remember that when you're voting in your local elections when <laughs> they're willing to pay certain yeah. workers and what reform they're trying to do for mental health stuff so that's my little plot okay back to the yeah. case so yeah <laughs> <laughs> i got sidetracked but it was important After the initial judgment, not the conclusion of the lawsuit because that took a long time, the Jemison Center was closed in 1977. It's since been abandoned and covered in plant growth. It's crumbling and very dangerous and very creepy. I've seen pictures and I will post some. Even during the day, it's really hard to see much of it despite the caved-in roofs and ceilings due to the plant overgrowth. The walls are covered in graffiti. Pretty much anything that could be destroyed has been destroyed. And you can even find remnants of the past, including patient bedding and bathtubs. Can I ask, has Paul, have you told Paul about this place? Okay. Because he won't be going here. He won't? You you don't want to go here. Oh, I figured he would be the one. No, you'll get get arrested. Oh, I figured he'd want to go. Yeah. Oh, he would. He totally would if it was a possibility. So now there are the reports of visitor experiences. Numerous people have reported seeing shadows, hearing disembodied voices, screams, footsteps, and creaking doors. Some people have reported their hair being pulled, debris being thrown, being hit and scratched, and some have even reported having scratch marks on them after leaving the site. Wow. You know, there are a couple. That's a common, that's a common occurrence with like encounters in um, um, asylums and in penitentiaries is scratch marks. I've been going down a rabbit hole and encounters lately. <laughs> and one of the common occurrences when you're when you're dealing with like supernatural forces in those areas is that they will scratch the shit out of you and you won't know until you leave. They're angry. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. A lot of them said they didn't notice it until they left, and they looked down at their arms, and they'd be scratched. Mm-hmm. These people are angry. They they want to don't know blame that. them. I don't blame them either. I'd be pissed too. I like a good scratch though. <laughs> it's got to be in the right spot. <laughs> Speaking of detours, <laughs> go on. I'm sorry. So firsthand accounts from AlabamaHauntedHouses.com, and this website's really cool. Just to kind of look, uh, you can look up various places that are said to be haunted um, in Alabama, and it's got all kinds of firsthand accounts. That's basically what people do. They go on there, they go to these places, and then they post about what their experience is. One of them said, I've been to the Jemison Center a few times and I have a recording of a man screaming and we didn't hear it out loud. We only heard it when we played the videos back, but it sounded like somebody screaming in agony. And then the next time we went, which was last night, we heard a slamming noise and we got scared thinking it was the cops. Then we heard running and that freaked us out. So we started leaving. Then we heard a baby crying in the woods. I literally thought it was my mind playing tricks on me until I looked at my wife and her face looked petrified. We took off running and left. Don't like that. (laughs) I don't like that. And there was two reports actually of a baby crying. So that's something that's been heard more than What is it so innately creepy about a disembodied baby that is crying? In the woods. In the woods. Why is it in the woods? Why is it... Because a real baby crying is terrifying. That's true. So it's true. One, it's even worse. I don't know what to do. I keep petting it. It would be it so much worse. <laughs> I've gotten better, okay? Um, another one said, we've been to this site several times. We even went to the nursing home part of the side. Of the side, I think. Oh, off to the side. Having been there during the day and at night, I can say it's definitely a spooky place. I'm a photographer, so you can imagine I took a ton of photographs one side, and I have one with a very, very clear image of a nurse wearing the exact type of uniform you see in pictures online at Old Bryce. At first, I wasn't sure about the type of uniform until I researched more. Did you say there's a nursing home right by this place? There's like a section of it is a nursing home. Was a nursing okay, home. Okay, so it's not now. I was like, could you imagine like... No. People who are. Oh my gosh, that would be the worst thing to put close to this thing. (laughs) Or they're suffering from uh, Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever, and they tell their nurse, I just keep seeing these people walking around and they're blah, blah. I'm just like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. he says, having been there this year, I think it's important to note that the gate to the road leading to the center is now closed shut and you would have to literally sneak in and the building is pretty unsafe already at this point. And the last firsthand account, my nephew and a buddy of mine went there recently and heard whistling, had stuff thrown at us and heard a woman cry. Plus, my nephew and I caught a shadow figure and lots of orbs there and an EVP saying, can I kill him? What? I got the name Xena and Clara and a hiss. So, yes, it's definitely haunted. Okay. That's uh, pretty freaky, not gonna lie. Thus, I will not be going to this site even if I could. But I will also say, please note, this site is private property and it is illegal to step onto the grounds. Local police patrol the area regularly and will arrest anyone caught on the property. It's extremely dangerous to visit as the building is quite literally falling apart as time goes on. Do not visit this location unless you seek and are given permission to do so, like a couple of the photographers from the sites I'm going to include in the show notes. There are plenty of pictures to give you a glimpse into this really terrible haunted place. And uh, you can also see the building from the outside of the building from the road. You can see the front part of it. So you can see a good bit of it from the road. 
So you can just drive by and like see. Stuff. Yeah. And you can probably park on the side of the road and take pictures of like the outside if that's what you want to do. But the, to get close enough to the building to like walk around it, you would have to go through the gate and that's, that's part gotcha. close. Okay. So that's it. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. It was, was sufficiently creepy. Sorry. I was trying to make it go as quickly as possible. Cause I know there's three. Well, I'm so glad I'm going to sleep tonight. Um, <laughs> great job. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm going to be all snuggled up, sleeping, thinking about all these things. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Can't wait. You're weird as fuck. I love you. I'm not. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's a joke. All right, Kelty, you're up next. That was good, though, Sam. I like that. Okay, me, my turn. All right. So um, I will start with my resources because unlike Sam, I don't have them, like, buried into my thing. You're so, like, professional. <laughs> oh, I've I have to. Otherwise, if I go through the list, it's boring. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, here's my boring part. Okay. So Wikipedia, and I know, Montana, I've given you shit about this before, but I used Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> uh, allthingsinteresting.com, usghostadventures.com, ghostwalks.com, washingtonin.com, which was an article written by Marissa Cascino. WowKTV.com with, um, this was an interview with the operations manager, um, Rebecca Jordan, whose family now owns the property. Oh, I guess I should tell you. Um, my asylum is now currently called Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. It's currently so, called that or it was? It is. No, it's currently called that um, because it's a tourist attraction right okay. now. So kind of. All right, so let's go back in time. It started. <laughs> you ready to go in our time machine? I'm excited for it. Yay! Thanks. No women's rights. Yay. Let's go. <laughs> Can't wait. So Weston Way State to bring Hospital. Back to that. Thanks. For that <laughs> <little> reminder. <laughs> okay, so um, the first name that it was given was Weston State Hospital, and it was located in Weston, West Virginia. Um, it, it's also been known by many names. Like I said, currently it's called the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. It was operational from 1864 to 1994. During construction of the building, work had to stop due to the Civil War. Virginia wanted to use the money for the structure for war efforts. So they put all of the money into the bank um, to use for the war efforts. The 7th Ohio Volunteer Infantry decided to march from Clarksburg, and they took from the bank $27,000 in gold from Virginia. Great. They then... Go ahead. No, I said great. Just yeah, stealing wonderful. Money okay. <laughs> they stole some money. So they took that... <clears throat> excuse me. They took that gold to Independence Hall in Wheeling, Virginia, which was the capital of Virginia at the time. They used the money to reorganize a government that favored the North, and then they seceded. Oh, sorry, I knocked my microphone. Then they seceded from Virginia to become West Virginia and were admitted to the Union in 1863. So they decided to continue building the asylum. So the hospital was basically um, built because West Virginia became a state of its own. Which is kind of interesting. I put that in there because I, I like history. <clears throat> Okie doke. Um, construction continued and the hospital was then called the West Virginia State Hospital for the Insane. It opened its doors to treat patients in 1864. The facility was designed in good faith by Dr. Thomas Kirkbride and intended to hold 250 people. 
Kirkbride wanted to help the patients. He later founded the American Psychiatric Association, so this guy really did mean well. He had excellent intentions, but terrible science and technology at the time. The facility was also meant to be self-sufficient, including a farm, dairy farm, waterworks, and a cemetery, all of which occupied 666 acres of land. Speaking of which, that is actually a trend that you see in asylums. Because again, I have researched three asylums <laughs> in a week. Is that overachiever? I know I'm an overachiever. Um, they will. Don't worry, she's not talking about all three. This on this. No, episode. I'm not. <laughs> oh God, that would take forever. <laughs> um, they will try to be self-sufficient. Well, in a lot of prisons at the time, you know what? Prisons and asylums have a lot in common. Unfortunately, yes, they do. Um, mm-hmm. But they would have like cattle farms and they would have their own cemetery and they would have their own like mm-hmm. power grid and all of that other nonsense so mm-hmm. yeah pretty neat. i thought you were going to say something about them being on 666 acres of land oh no i mean a lot of them start out with a lot of acreage too um just like i don't she still doesn't get it 666 oh well <laughs> 666. Oh, okay. Well, and the other, well, the other thing I was, I thought you were going to go into is like, you'll see this, a trend is the whole working, the, thinking oh, about yeah. the working being part of the treatment, which to some extent, okay, sure. Yeah. That makes sense. It gets them out of the, out of the treatment facility. Mm-hmm. It gives them some kind of purpose, which is helpful, um, especially for depression, obviously having like goals and doing things, mm-hmm. but it depends on how you enforce that yes. and how you put it into place yeah, so, you enforce it sure. right after uh, the civil war and the laws have changed mm-hmm. about slavery and so you're just trying mm-hmm. to get free labor about stuff but that's just me and that's my opinion yeah well my information didn't kind of didn't really go into that but the only section of the um estate that was ever expanded was the cemetery By 1880, the 250-person capacity building was now holding 717 patients. That number only increased as time went by. In 1935, there was a fire in the building, um, and then that part was rebuilt and restored. But again, to my knowledge, I don't believe it was um, intended to hold any more than 250 people. Sounds a lot like the penitentiary that Montana covered. It, yes. yes, it does. Doesn't you, it? you just keep adding more people, not more space, just nope. more people. It'll be yeah. fine. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, in 1913, the uh, name was changed from the West Virginia State Hospital for the Insane to Weston State Hospital. During its operation, so when the hospital opened its doors in 1864, it was exactly what Kirkbride had wanted it to be, with 250 patients, all with their own rooms. They were comfortable and well taken care of at this time. The patients being admitted suffered from the following ailments. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) buckle up. Epilepsy, alcoholism, drug addiction, postpartum issues, um, and something else called quote, non-educable mental defectives, end quote, which is in my notes, I wrote this, the most degrading thing I've ever had to say. And I hope I'll never have to say it again. And later it would tend to many other ailments. So you have epilepsy that is an actual neurological disorder. Well, I mean, but Mm -hmm. it's not something that, whatever. 
you can't treat that as <laughs> that type no. of a facility. You're, you're not going to do yeah, shit. You need to go right. to an actual hospital. Okay. Postpartum mm-hmm. depression or postpartum anything can be treated with medicine, therapy, structured environment, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, alcoholism. Actually, I do think that mental hospitals could deal with alcoholism. I don't know. It's just my thought. Any kind of addiction thing, that's fine. But epilepsy? Mm-hmm. And, and somebody it gets worse who is, like has a like a learning disorder that's ultimately what that means yeah which like i said i i don't want to say it again but a learning yeah, it's a learning disorder that's it it's, is. Not a it's a learning disorder mm-hmm. it's yeah it's messed up but this was in the 1800s 1864 so okay <clears throat> as i stated earlier the creation of the facility had great intentions Dr. Kirkbride, who was operating the facility, emphasized the importance of light and fresh air, so the building was created with 12-foot ceilings, including large windows to let in plenty of light and air. He also believed that the patients should have freedom and that they would behave better when given some control over their lives, which to an extent I um, agree with. A quote from a patient during the positive time of the hospital states, quote, I remember the Thanksgiving thing was great. We had great turkeys, and the Christmas thing was wonderful. It was like a fairy tale atmosphere. It's like, I must be in heaven. I'm not in a nut house. I'm in heaven. End quote. Oh, oh sweetie, where were you before I here? I know. That, that's so sad. Well, that was in its heyday. So just, you know, keep that in mind. That was when but I'm there was just saying, only- like, that sounds like what you would expect if you lived at home, right? Yeah. And she's yeah, like, you're this right. is like heaven. So, honey, what did you yeah. have to experience before this? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying no. comparatively. Yeah. The honeymoon phase soon came to an end in 1880 when the population was nearing 717 patients. The following year held a huge influx in diagnosis and stigma of mental disorders, resulting in the admission of almost 500 additional patients. Wait, what year was so, that? On top of the 700. On top of the 717, yes, 1880. So if you're doing the math, which I'm required to do, it's about 1,217 patients in a building that is rated for 250 people. Great. In 1880. Yeah. I don't see a problem. No, none. Obviously, the staff was not able to keep up with the overflow of patients and conditions drastically declined. Patients were piled into five or more in a room that was meant for one. Conditions only continued to get worse as admissions rose again. This time, not only people with mental illness, but people with, you ready for this? Asthma, rabies, indigestion, political excitement. What? And hold on. <laughs> hold on. My favorite. My Everybody favorite. would be in the mental hospital. If, if there was political yes. excitement, I would have been put in there at birth. Are you kidding me right now? Yes. Here's Everybody in this one. nation just about would be in a mental hospital. Mm-hmm. Disobedient wives. Oh, my favorite. Oh, I, know. I love it. Let that one sink in. So good. Yeah. Oh I would have been right in there. Yeah, same, same. The once self-sufficient facility designed to provide for 300 people was not able to meet the needs, obviously. This led to malnutrition, which caused mental issues to be worse and also led to death. By 1938, the hospital was six times over capacity. Great. 
The patients outnumbered the orderlies and ran wild. The staff that could not control the patients would be locked in cages, while patients who were, quote, easier to manage, end quote, were able to roam free. With the massive amount of patients, the staff was overworked and skimped on sanitation, causing more illness and death. Reports from 1949 state the facility has poor sanitation, little furniture, low lighting, and little heat. Patients were living in their own filth and probably their own form of hell. All of these factors caused between 400 and 500 deaths, according to historians. But don't worry, it gets much worse. Oh, great. Yes. In the early 1950s, the facility became home of the lobotomy project. Oh, of course. So meanwhile, the population was at an all-time high of 2,600 in a place for 250 people. Okay. So the lobotomies were performed, and these were all like experimental, by the way. So it's lobotomy project because it, they're just trying it out. Sure. Why not? The lobo- Right? Stick. The lobotomy. Stick, an, oh, go stick ahead. an ice pick right in my eyeball. I'm just. Yeah. Swirl it around. I mean. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you know, uh, forced medical treatment mm-hmm. was definitely a thing for patients uh, in these places. Yeah. 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 I mean, easy prey. Yeah. All right. So the lobotomies were performed by Dr. Walter Freeman using his, quote, ice pick method, which is funny you said that, Sam. Um, He completed some 4,000 lobotomies during his time at the hospital, leaving many with lasting damage and others dead. Wait, isn't isn't he the guy? Sticking an ice pick in your brain could cause death? Mm -hmm. What? Freeman, he sounds so familiar. I think he's the doctor who at one point had done over 400 lobotomies within like two weeks. And like he, you're probably right because he did four thousand at just at this place. Yeah, he went around like tour. He was like a touring lobotomist. He just like yeah, he went to different facilities. So like, here we go. I got my own ice pick. I haven't cleaned it in Mm -hmm. months. Let's go. (laughs) So he probably wiped it off. Okay, yeah, on his shirt that he hadn't (laughs) cleaned in like a week. So yeah, it's totally sanitary. Fine. So the ice pick method, for those of you who are dying to know, involved slipping a thin pointed rod into the patient's eye socket and then hammering it into the frontal lobe of the brain. Barf. Other treatments included, but were not limited to, the use of drugs such as, oh gosh, I looked up how to pronounce this. Let me see if I can remember. You never remember. Chloropromazine. Nailed it. Or also known as Thorazine, which is intended for psychosis and was given to patients to keep them in a catatonic state. Insulin shock therapy was used as well as electroconvulsive therapy, which led to comas and death. And I mentioned this before in um, Sam's, but something in my research, they literally said, it's it's important to remember that at this time, the technology was not readily available and doctors did not know the damage they were causing. To them, some of this technology was cutting edge yeah well insulin using insulin was actually widely done at that time mm-hmm. and uh it caused a big issue <laughs> and it's just something that's covered up like nobody well i mean it's not covered mm-hmm. up it's just like not as well known that they were giving people insulin that didn't need it that didn't need insulin <laughs> yeah uh, all right. Uh, so isolation. I mean, I, I will. I want to say one no, thing. No, no, no. You're good. Though. You're good. Mm-hmm. This is medical treatment. 
in, in a nutshell, because mm -hmm. they know so little about migraines. So seven years ago, I first started having chronic migraines. I had a migraine consistently for six months before they were able to find a way to break it oh my God. between severe and somewhat mild for six full months, not a single day of a break. I literally thought I was going to go crazy, but this is how the treatment went. We tried Topamax, which is an anti-seizure medication. We tried um, amyltryptyline, which is an antidepressant. We tried one that was like a bisoprolol, which is what I take for my heart medicine. And it's for blood pressure. None of these things are supposed to be treated for migraines, but people tried them. It helped mm -hmm. some people. So now it's a treatment that they use on low doses, slowly increase the dose until either a, it helps or B, the side effects are so bad that you have to switch to something else. This is literally the treatment plan for migraines because they don't know what causes them. So on one hand, yeah, okay, you're finding something that helps, but listen to that treatment plan and think about what these patients are having to go through because I've been through it. Mm -hmm. This is what they were doing. Yeah, They're just trying true. out different things, seeing what works. That means that somebody has to go through it and it not work for them to move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's that's awful. Oh and my what my point is, it's going on today. So mm -hmm. as much as you'd like to think these things have changed, to be honest, I don't know how much they really have. Mm -hmm. Some things have changed. We're not doing physical things like stabbing people in the brain through their eye, but treatments using medicine haven't really changed that much. I mean, how many other things are used in ways that they're not necessarily supposed to birth control. It's mm. also helped to use, used to help acne. It's used to help other things. So you have all these different medicines. Oh, Hey, here's a side effect that works. Let's just give this to somebody. Mm -hmm. So you could argue either side, but in an ideal situation, they should be able to do more studies and figure out an Absolutely. actual treatment. Yeah. Yeah. They just now, like within the last five years, released the first medication that they came up with that was specifically developed for migraines. Oh, my God. Within the last five years. That's insane to think about. And that's one of the most common disabilities in the United States oh my is God. chronic migraines. Ugh. So just putting that into perspective. Yeah, that's a that definitely put things. Like not trying to go off on a tangent, but just saying no, no, like. No. As much as you'd like to think that this has changed, and it should. I mean, with mm -hmm. how much technology we have, it should definitely be changing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it really hasn't changed as much as it should have. No. Yeah. Oh, and you can say that a lot about a lot of different, unfortunately, about a lot of different medical things. Because it's trial and error. Mm -hmm. What's the harm, especially if you're in an asylum? Right? Yeah. That's. I think that's what they were thinking. In theory, now at least... You're, they have to give you the disclaimers. These are all the possible mm -hmm. side effects. These are the things you could be signing up for. You have to sign this waiver saying you understand that and you're still willing to go forward with it. There is that. But I would not be surprised if they also did it at times without those waivers and, yeah. and the volunteering. Yeah. But it's obviously a lot less common than it was back then. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let me um, keep going. So the isolation cells uh, were used very frequently because of the uh, overworked staff who could not control the patients. Patients would do almost anything to avoid isolation. A former boxer who was admitted with head injuries that caused violence and lack of emotions was put into isolation. 
He attempted to beat down the metal door. When this proved to be unsuccessful, he tore the door from the hinges, then proceeded to calmly hand the door to a nurse (laughs) and walked back to his room. Okay. (laughs) What? You know what? I don't see any other way he could have handled that situation. It was flawless. It was perfect. Um, So, of course, I have to have like a quick sidebar. So when I had my stint in the... I like to call it the loony bin. I know that's not PC, but whatever. Um, I taunted the staff to be put into the isolation room because they did, they had one um, for like severe cases. Well, and my husband like gave permission that I was allowed to go in there because I needed to. Um, I refused to go to sleep in my room and my roommate basically like hated me, wanted me to leave, but I like refused to stay in my room. And finally they were like, are you going to sleep in your room? And I said, no. And they said, well, what are we going to do with you? And I said, I don't know. Lock me up. And they did. <laughs> they did. They listened to me. <laughs> and I, I feel like there. this is like dealing with toddlers. Like, yeah. All right. I, fine. I, I was. That's what my husband said I was. I was like a little toddler. But anyway, so they locked me up and I slept in there. I slept perfectly fine. So, you know. <laughs> was that? Did you do that one time when you were naked? Is that what you were talking about? <laughs> No, well, I wasn't naked that time because I remember it. I don't ever remember running naked. Which I know I did because people told me I did, but I personally don't remember. I was like not in my brain at the time. <laughs> no, I remember. <laughs> I know you remember. Uh, what a time. So mental mental illness and, and the things our brains do sometimes mm-hmm. are quite trippy. So yes, so weird. Another horrifying story from the facility was when a man was murdered by his two roommates. This is a little graphic, so trigger warning for anyone who would like to skip ahead. So the two men tried to hang the man with bed sheets, but failed. So instead, they placed his head under the leg of the bed and jumped on it until the bed frame was bent to the floor. Um, so many other murders took place due to mental illness, going untreated or poorly treated, as well as the overcrowding. There was one instance when a nurse went missing. The police were involved, but found no evidence that would lead to her um, disappearance. Two months later, the nurse's body was found at the bottom of a stairwell that was rarely used. It was suspected that the nurse was killed by the patients. How do you just go missing in like a a restricted place for two months? I have no idea. After so many horrific events and reports shedding light on the unthinkable conditions, the hospital was closed in May of 1994. It was purchased and reopened as a tourist attraction in 2007 and is still open today. So I'm going to get into the hauntings, and that's the last part of this. I know mine seems a little long. Um, Okay, so um, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is considered one of the most haunted locations in all of West Virginia. It is also a national landmark and was purchased by a family who wanted to keep the history alive. They offer many types of tours, but all usually include some paranormal activity. In patient rooms who have been murdered, cold spots and distant cries are reported. In the isolation room, so the one where the guy ripped off the door, in the isolation room, visitors have reported being pushed or scratched while also hearing voices saying, get me out of here. Yeah. That's creepy as in the early <laughs> In the early 2000s, while giving a tour, the operation manager, Rebecca Jordan, reported that she felt a hand on her shoulder that squeezed her. Ew, don't touch me. She was in... 
<laughs> she was in front of a tour group and was unable to move. The group knew something had happened when she was, or knew something had happened. And when she was able to, to speak, she explained what it was. She believes it was a ghost because obviously it fucking was. Duh. Another firsthand account from Marissa Cascino states that while in the room of a patient, Jim James, Marissa and another tourist inspected a mag light and then placed it on the floor in the middle of the room. They asked Jim to turn the light on. A few moments later, the light came on by itself. Gross. Next, the, <laughs> next, the pair offered Jim a cigarette to turn the light off. The light then went off on its own. In another instance, during the filming of an episode of Ghost, they Hunt, actually give him the cigarette, though. Um, they probably put it on the floor or something. Yeah, I sure hope so. Because yeah, that'd be just toying with him. I know some of the information I found says that like tour groups and stuff. The um, the oh my, I know it's it's very loud. It's okay. It that just, was really loud. It makes it even <laughs> spookier. It's just spooky. Is there a car alarm going off? Hold on. No, that's thunder. No, there's a legit car alarm going off in my um, neighborhood. Oh, we can't hear the car alarm. All we hear is okay, thunder. I, can hear I was hearing the thunder. It's like that. It's like the um, like one like Perfect. that to like changes. Yeah, great. Anyway, um, oh my gosh. Okay, uh, I lost my train of thought. Let's try this again. Okay, episode of Ghost Hunters. Or wait, no, I was telling you, Sam, that yes, they give um, the the tour guides will give the visitors like cigarettes and things that the patients like want so they can um, nice interact with them okay in another instance during the filming of an episode of ghost hunters the visitors heard a man asking for his beer he was in the civil war wing of the hospital a few months later the asylum received a gift from a previous employee um, it was an admissions book they then found the record of Jacob, a man admitted for alcoholism, which caused delusions. He always believed people were hiding his beer from him. They believe the ghost hunters found his beer. I don't feel like that was delusions. He was there for alcoholism. I don't think they gave him his beer. I feel like that was just observation. Probably. You're probably right. Some of the spirits are friendly, such as Lily, who is believed to be a child born in the asylum. This was a normal event as women who were admitted while pregnant would give birth and keep the child with them until they were released. Or in this case, they were never released. Lily is said to be a friendly, playful spirit who is known for her laughter and willingness to play games with tourists. Other paranormal activities reported include seeing dark shadows, objects moving on their own, hearing disembodied voices and cries, banging on the walls, and broken glass. The property is now owned and operated by Rebecca Jordan and her family. They offer all kinds of tours, including the history of mental illness the, and treatment, architectural tours, agricultural tours, and of course, paranormal tours. The family takes care of the facility in order to preserve history and remind each other that we never need to go back to these horrific ways of dealing with mental illness. Rebecca says that they even enjoy helping people track down their ancestors who were former patients in the asylum by using date books, admission records, and any other information they're able to find. So like I said, they are, um, they give tours and it's open uh, to go visit. So go visit. And that's it. Good job. Slight plug. <laughs> Thanks. 
All right, so up next, I'm going to cover the Desjarnet Sanatorium. My resources are Wikipedia, but I only use, Samantha, you'll be proud of me, Wikipedia for just a little bit of background on uh, Joseph Desjarnet. Um, I'm not here to judge. You judge you loud. judge me for my Wikipedia use, okay? <laughs> I, I judge you too. <laughs> Uh, onlyinyourstate.com, um, uh, the backroadtraveler.wordpress.com, and I hate using like a WordPress thing, but if it's free, bro, go for it. Um, vegan Victor, I can't. Veganvictuals.com slash abandon in plain sight, and then common live.jmu uh that's actually the um that last one is the link to the um the thesis that i found on this place so there's a whole thesis that was written for a whatever um i don't i don't go into any of the great detail that the thesis goes but i put it in the resources because i found it interesting and if you wanted to read it go for it because uh, I don't have anything better to do than to read about <laughs> a bunch of sanatoriums. So, anyway. <laughs> uh, we all know what that's like. Yeah, tell me about it. So, we can't talk about uh, Desjarnet Sanatorium without talking about Joseph Desjarnet. Joseph Desjarnet was born on his family's plantation, Pine Forest, in Spotsylvania County, Virginia. To parents Elliot Desjarnet, formerly a captain in the Confederate Confederate Army, gross, and Evelyn Desjarnet, formerly nothing, because women were to be seen and not heard in the late 1800s. Why did I write my notes like this? That's how you. That's how you think. That's how your brain literally. Are you actually typing this, or are you just recording it and letting it type for you? That's all I need to know. I'm actually (laughs) typing it as I'm researching it, and this is how I put my notes in there, so that I will be an asshole and read it back later. But whatever. Um, Speaking of dates, Joseph Spencer Desjarnet was born on September 29th. 1866, making him a Libra, which seems pointless. Thank you for clarifying yeah, no, that. you're welcome. <laughs> which seems... Important information. So we all needed to know the zodiac sign of, it, of this guy. <laughs> Pointlessly wake... What does that mean, though? I'm not good at zodiac, so what does that mean? It means he's a creative. He's very friendly. He's very sociable, blah, blah, blah. And to, to make this point go more home... My next phrase in this is, which seems pointlessly wasted on him since he was a total dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, I wonder how this this story is going to go. You're welcome. I bet he's the bad guy. No. (laughs) No. Um, After graduating from the Medical College of Virginia in 1888... Desjarnet practiced at the R.E. Lee Camp Confederate Soldiers Home in Richmond for a year before joining the staff of the Western Lunatic Asylum in Stanton, Staunton? I think it's Staunton. The asylum was renamed to Western State Hospital in 1894 
I almost said 1984 because I have dyslexia. Um, but it's 1894. I, I say I say 19 all the time because I forget that it's in the 1800s. Exactly. <laughs> Whoops. On February 14th, 1906, he married a colleague, Dr. And I'm going to I'm going to ruin this name, but Dr. Chertsey Hopkins, a physician. Nailed it. Yeah, I nailed it. Totally. I did great. What are you talking about? Um, a physician at Western State Hospital, as he was advised that being a stable married man was necessary for career advancement. She can. I don't know. Can I can I just interject? Here? <laughs> yes, please do. What, what married men are stable? <laughs> None. <laughs> They're only well. stable because their wives <laughs> help them to be stable. Mine's in the stable. Um, <laughs> why did I say that? Is he a horse? Like, you've been boarded? I don't know. Is he boarded? <laughs> uh, I need to sleep. Uh, she continued to practice medicine following the marriage, and the couple had no children. So... I don't want to go into a lot of details about this dude because he just pisses me off. So I'm going to take out the highlights of this charming fella. Also, this is my third asylum. I've researched if I haven't made that clear and I'm ready to set my hair on fire. (laughs) This is in my notes. (laughs) Joseph Spencer Dickhead Desjarnet was a vocal prominent of racial there's my one there's one one. of racial segregation and eugenics specifically dude like to sterilize the mentally ill what (sighs) yeah well on the bright side they didn't have any kids so the sterilization wasn't required tell me about it dickhead desjarnet was somewhat of a poet you might say there's that Libra energy. <laughs> he even wrote a poem entitled Mendel's Law, a plea for a better race of men. Fucking gross. But I'm going to read it to you now. Thanks. You're welcome. The poem goes, This is the law of Mendel, and often he maketh it plain. Defectives will breed defectives. And the insane will breed insane. Oh, why do we allow these people to breed back to the monkey's nest? To increase our county's, country's burdens. When we should be only breed the best. So like is, is he for, is he for like euthanasia or something? What the hell? We're just going to start killing people. So I, I did a lot of like background research on him. I didn't put a lot in my notes. But he was a prominent supporter of the Nazi movement, and he no way knew it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, he fully supported Hitler. So, if that tells you anything, what a great guy! He's awful. So, I mean, I I guess he wasn't covert about it at all. You don't say. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you wanted to know who Mandel is, because I sure as fuck didn't. I actually was going to ask, um, but I was a little. I actually yeah. didn't want to know, but I looked it up just just to you know appease whatever. 
Actually, I did want to know, and that's why I looked it up, because I'm fucking crazy, and I hadn't done enough research. So, he was, are you ready for this? He was a biologist, a meteorologist, a mathematician, and some kind of religious stuff I didn't care to look further into. Um, Literally, my notes right here. Didn't care to look further into this. He did work on the sciences of genetics and established many of the rules of heredity. Now referred to... I remember this guy now. Now I know why I recognize it. As the law of Mendelian inheritance. Mendel coined the terms recessive and dominant in reference to certain traits. I want to be clear that a lot of his research was not human research and it was done Mm plant-based. So... Well, I mean, that's how he was able to notice how genetic traits worked because he had to work with things that could have generations while he was watching them. And so I honestly don't know if Mandel was a dickhead like our Sir Desjarnet because I didn't take the time to, like, dig into his life. Uh, Though I will... Though his later um, cause whatever. He later did strides that made genetic studies... Uh, pretty fascinating but with a great knowledge comes great racism misogyny and discrimination a la dickhead Mm -hmm. Desjarnet (laughs) so now to our hospital has has a rather (laughs) fine ring to it by the way dickhead Desjarnet Mm -hmm. it does hey sounds great I have renamed him uh so to get to our hospital we start our story about 200 years ago in Staunton Virginia Western Lunatic Asylum was founded. The year was 1828. The organization was formed as a retreat for adults and adolescents who were suffering from learning disorders, mental health issues, and those needing rehabilitation treatments. Due to its location, it became infamous. It was accessible by many major routes and was centrally located within the western portion of the state. The asylum was also well known for its resort-style features, including a park-like campus, walking trails, gardens, and amenities like a fitness center, pool, and chapel. The facility was formed after the presidential presidential election in 1828 of Andrew Jackson Gross, who started the national trend on humanitarian causes, which ultimately catalyzed the project's construction, placing Staunton on the map in terms of behavioral health. Mm -hmm. After the facility opened, it was renamed in 1894 to Western Western State Hospital in efforts to broaden its reputation to provide the community with greater care options. It goes through like five different name changes. I've noticed that's the other thing I'll say is on trend. They change their names a lot. Yeah. Probably because they don't want to be like, well, if they use the word insane in one of their names, they're like, oh, we better not do that again. And Or like, lunatic. Um, yeah. I we don't want to bring the wrong type of people in here. <laughs> but also it makes me, it makes it really hard for me to research these places because I got to research like five different names and I couldn't make things more complicated for myself already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> what is happening? 
1905, Dr. Joseph Dickhead Desjarnet was appointed the director. Of- <laughs> <laughs> Have you been writing that in your notes? Like it yes, says that it in is your- literally <laughs> in my notes because I'm oh an asshole. I'm so an, you I'm- take the time to type that out every single time. You yes. Wow. Past me hates present me. Okay. And so, oh my God. What is wrong with me? Tuesday so Montana was like, or uh, let's see, what Sunday Montana? Sunday Montana was like, this is Tuesday Montana's problem. Fuck her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so accurate. <laughs> oh my god, he was appointed the director of the Western State Hospital. Doctor Desjarnet was also known to idolize. Nazi Germany and their eugenics efforts lobbying aggressively for the state of Virginia to pass similar sterilization laws. Gross. Fucking gross. During his time as director of Western State Hospital, Dr. Desjarnet changed the atmosphere and culture of the facility greatly. The complex went from being a resort-like treatment to an almost apocalyptic prison filling. This culture only became more negative as Dr. Desjarnet lobbying for aggressive sterilization laws progressed. Finally, in 1922, and can we all guess what was happening around 1922? Hmm, hmm, hmm. Um, finally, in 1922, due to similarities in political views and prominence in the mental health community, Dr. Desjarnet befriended newly elected Virginia Governor E. Lee Trinkle. Together, Dr. Desjarnet and Governor Trinkle, I'm just skipping over it now, okay? (laughs) Won the support from other legislators passing the Eugenical Sterilization Act of 1924, a.k.a. Racial Integrity Act. This new act reinforced racial segregation by preventing interracial marriages and classifying white as being pure 100% Caucasian. Under the new act, men and women who were admitted to the hospital were involuntarily sterilized to prevent the future breeding of interracial human beings. Oh my God. And you've never heard about this guy. (laughs) Uh, I'm... I don't want to hear about him. He's a piece of shit. So I didn't either. I wouldn't want Um, to talk about him either. Yeah. I was very mad when I was writing my notes. It is unknown how many people, how many people were sterilized, but estimates place Virginia as the second highest state in number of recorded sterilizations between 1924 and 1957. I'll give you both one guess on what the first state would be in that. And you're not going to get it right. Well, then why bother? Because I like guessing <laughs> games. You know this. The, with the highest sterilization yeah. rate? Yes. Oh, I don't know. I'm probably not going to get it right either. Just tell us. It was California. I was going to say California, actually. Oh, okay. Dang. There we go. That was the first thing I thought of. And I was like, I no, she said, she said I'm going to get it wrong, so I better not say it. <laughs> Um, well, because you also have to think about Carol, uh, Carolina, you have to think about California in that time frame. Uh, what was it, 1924 to 1957? A lot of 
people of color moved to the West to get away from slavery and things like that. But it didn't stop the racism and especially the racism in the medical field. And so a lot of them ended up getting sterilized. And there are horror stories of children, women, girls as young as 10 years old having forced hysterectomies from back then. And I unfortunately read about it. So you're welcome. You don't have to. Yikes. Yeah. So with the new act in place, Dr. Desjarnet decided to open his own privately funded facility. Okay, I just want you to know I'm silently hearing dickhead every single I time you pause. <laughs> and you pause every time too. That's even I'm worse. like, I'm just filling it in for you. So it doesn't make much just, of a difference. I'm just going to say it. All right. Decided to open his own privately funded facility in 1932 and transferred patients to his newly formed clinic. Naming it Desjardins Sanatorium. Dickhead Desjardins Sanatorium. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There he continued to perform countless sterilizations and medical experiments on patients such as electroshock therapy and lobotomies. Hi. It was at times. Gross. In 1943, after the culture at Western State Hospital worsened, the board of directors removed Dr. Dickhead Desjardins from his position due to his autocratic leadership style and the decrepit conditions of the treatments patients were receiving. Many former patients reported being shackled to the walls and floors, being malnourished and overcrowding of cells. That's right fucking cells because they weren't rooms anymore it's not surprising considering his views on those that had any kind of mental illness oh dr dickhead desjarnet was accused of inhumane treatment of patients he remained in charge of his own facility until 1947 continuing to advocate his beliefs in the eugenics well after nazi holocaust was exposed in world war ii Ended. Oh my god. Mm, yeah. After Dickhead's death in 1957, his complex was renamed to Desjardins Center for Developing Behavior. For the first time in its history, it was deprivatized and became an official state institution with the operation of the complex in the hands of Virginia state legislator. After the clump, blah, blah, blah. Three. Oh my That's god. Three. Okay. You've got you uh, had a lot of D's in this one. Like it's a it is a lot Dick, of D's. Dr. Dickhead Desjarnet. <laughs> I knew you were gonna say. And Desjarnet's not easy to say, okay? No. Uh, it's not you easy made to it read. even harder by calling him a dickhead each time. I know. What is wrong with me? So much. <laughs> so much. After the complex, we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, okay. Oh, I'm so over it. Uh, what was that? Okay. Uh, after the complex was renamed, its treatment efforts were changed to primarily focus on children' behavioral health issues and the treatment of younger patients from Western State Hospital. So, Dickhead Desjardins is out. Things got better in the hospital, right? Probably not. Wrongo, friend. Why did I write that in my notes? <laughs> Are you saying it did get better? Because if you said wrong and I said it doesn't, 
That's no, like a double I, negative. No. <laughs> <laughs> I fuck. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Um I think I think I was How many of those drinks did you have? It's the you one and the I'm not even right done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even done. That, that's what I would go with too. <laughs> uh Maybe you should have gone first. <laughs> <Fuck>. Probably. <laughs> no, I just need to get some sleep. Listen, um, eugenic. All right, we're just all right. Eugenic sterilization efforts <laughs> continued well after the takeover from the state. Finally, in 1975, the state of Virginia voted to end involuntary sterilization. 1975. What the fuck? 1975. That was like yesterday. By the way, this, my friends, is when you give the powers to the state to do these types of things and you leave it to the states to make these types of decisions. This is the kind of decisions that are voted for. This yeah. this is the power you're giving to the state. So when you say that the federal government should not be able to rule on certain things and you should give the power to the state, here you go. Here's an example. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just, if you listen to my notes, uh, it's wrong, oh, friend. <sighs> so wrong <laughs> but also i wonder too because that's it's interesting how our our cases have kind of progressed so i kind of started with the the hospital here started out how people were looking at these asylums in 71 so that I, th- I feel like that got the ball rolling with some of these to where you can see where some of these treatments were very slowly, but surely getting acknowledged as inhumane. It shouldn't have taken that long, but it is interesting. Well, you look at the timelines too. All of our different asylums, hospitals, mental hospitals, they all started out with altruistic intentions. They all oh, had didn't. a plan in place to... Mine didn't. <laughs> Well, true. Um, but yours and, did. <laughs> yeah. Mine and Kelsey's did. Yours didn't. It was racially motivated to get free slave labor. But for the most part, they had altruistic intentions mm-hmm. to for ours, not yours. I want to clarify that again. Um, <laughs> and to, they started out well. Like yeah, at, at the very beginning. Very, wanted, very, very beginning. Yeah. They <laughs> very wanted to turned. focus on bettering people. And then mm-hmm. there was this there, there was this turning point where things got really bad. And I just I want to I want everybody to sit back and think. But also mm-hmm. consider mine opened after yours, too. Oh, that's true. So yeah. I wonder how much of that timeline corresponds to with when you had all of these turns at these other two that you guys are talking about and how much that coincides with when this one, the one I covered was open. Hmm. Well, it's just kind of like think about what was actually happening in the world at the times that these places took a turn. Um, eugenics, the mm-hmm. Nazi movement, uh, racial discrimination, Se- segregation, segregation. All of these different things were heavily played into the governing governance of these mental facilities, which caused them to go downhill real fast because men just decided they didn't want to deal with their women. And their wives, and they or their children, stuck them in these places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's my soapbox. I'm gonna get off of it. And I was trying to think of a term earlier when uh, Kelsey was talking about hers. Medicalized torture. That was the word I was looking for. Yes, that is what that was. They were voluntold, quote unquote, 
to try these medical treatments out because nobody cared about them and they didn't care if they died. Medicalized torture. That was the term. Thank you. My brain works eventually. That that really does sum it up, though, like exactly what was happening to them. That's awful. So, in 1996, the state of Virginia decided to close the original Desjardins Center. There was a new facility constructed on the hillside opposite of its former home. It was named the Commonwealth Center for Children and Adolescents. In 2004, a developer had plans to raise the facility and build an outdoor power center with retail, restaurants, and hotels. However, the plans were canceled after the developer failed to obtain enough tenants and due to the lack of funding for the demolition of the building. There is actually a show called Alpha Adventures that explored the Desjardins Sanatorium. It was... (laughs) I'm done. Uh, I have a whole other episode to record after this, so this is going to be fun. Um, It'll be great. It's going to be great. It was released in May of 2020, but, like, I legit searched every like i went on imdb this show this whole like show is listed on imdb but i can't find it anywhere i was gonna watch it your girl was gonna get scared by herself <laughs> couldn't watch it so if, if What's you it if, again it was called alpha adventures alpha so if you can adventures. find it um send us the link at reaper gals at reapertales.com because i want to watch it while samantha has to stay on the phone with me because i'm a scaredy cat <laughs> I can and watch like, it with you. Yeah, there we go. Somebody can watch it with me. Um, and lastly, there is an amazing master's thesis written by Brianna, and I'm going to torture this, Melcoin. Hopefully not. It's M-E-L-C-H-I-O-N-E. Called An Appointment with Dr. Joseph Desjarnet. And it was really hard for me not to put Dickhead in there, but this is the actual title of her thesis, an appointment with Dr. Joseph Desjarnet, an analysis of a leading eugenics advocate and how his legacy has been written 1906 to 1943. And I'll link that in the show notes, but just to give you like kind of a brief overview of kind of what the thesis is about is it goes, it goes from back when Desjarnet came into power and like, you know, started doing his um, doctoral work and all of that stuff all the way to where he ended. And how over time, like the thought process has changed on the ways that he conducted his practices, where he went from pretty much a hero to a fucking zero, um, you know, in a decade. So read that if you want to it's very well written i enjoyed it but i'm a nerd and i like to read thesis so um that's it wow. right now yeah wow. the desjarnet facility area is privately owned you can't go to it don't try to go to it uh, quite like samantha's it is deteriorating and we'll post pictures yeah, we'll post pictures of mine, too, because the inside is really cool. Well, and actually, the outside of mine is, like, beautiful. People like to – it um, looks like a manor house, like a really nice 
interesting. And you can go I, visit mine. So go visit mine. I remember seeing like pictures of that facility when Sinister had did it because I was like, mm-hmm. what is this? 200 something place? And they was all, everybody had their own room. So I looked it up and it's like, mm-hmm. there's different wings. There's like, it's a wing on each side. Mm-hmm. And they each side has like a room and they have like their own window. And I was like, damn, I'd live there. And then they got later on in the episode, and I was just like, oh, Never I don't mind. want to live there. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Well, man, I, feel, I feel I should have picked a different one since someone already did it on a different No, podcast, you covered but, stuff they oh. didn't. Don't. Yeah, oh, okay. No. Oh, well, cool. Thanks. It's, no, every, everybody can cover things multiple times because not everybody's yeah, going to listen. True. But I want to shout out Sinisterhood because... Well, and you're going to focus on different things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. your thought process is obviously going to be different, so mm-hmm. it works. Yeah. Cool, cool. So that's well, it. Um, we're an hour and a half in, so we're going to end this. Um, good job, Kelsey. Good job, Samantha. Good job, me. Good job, Lieutenant. Uh, good job, Kelsey. <laughs> good job, everyone. <laughs> Samantha, where can our now five listeners find us on Instagram? Special. Special. Yeah. They can find us at Reaper Tales Podcast. You can find us at Reaper Tales Podcast on facebook you can you can email gonna, us yeah, no, look i was trying and now you're gonna interrupt me okay i, fine, know, I don't know i don't know what that would be. go ahead <laughs> you can right. email us at reaper gals at reapertales.com i'm a loose cannon uh you can email us with your show suggestions tell us how pretty we are um anything that's gonna be negative it goes directly in the trash can i've written rules for our inbox so ha good luck um <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I didn't actually do that. Um, please be sure to like, <laughs> rate, review, and subscribe to wherever you listen to this podcast because we would just like more people to listen to it. Duh. And doing that gets the word out. More people can find us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. tell your friends. And thank you again, Kelsey, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It's been lovely. Do you want to do the sign-off? Me? Yeah, you want to do the sign-off? Yeah, I just say, until next time. The Reaper will come.